Wealth management is not just for the wealthy. Everyone is entitled to their best retirement possible. Welcome to The Retirement Engineer with Jim Cruzan, your path to a bigger, bolder retirement. Brought to you by Caden Wealth Management, a firm that specializes in serving the mobility technology industry. In this podcast, we help you maximize your resources and engineer your best retirement through a process-driven approach so you can get the little things right. Drawing from years of expertise, Jim and his guests will simplify complex wealth management strategies and explore actionable ideas to help you protect your hard-earned wealth and take control of your future. Now, on to the show. Today, we open the advanced planning toolbox of Jim Cruzan's Bigger, Bolder Retirement Formula. This includes, among other things, tax mitigation, cash flow planning, and risk management. It follows our previous discussion of investment management, why a one-size-fits-all model is not an ideal investment strategy, and how to take advantage of the many benefits that can be offered by an actively managed IRA. I'm Patrice Sikora. Jim, give us a bird's-eye view of advanced planning. I'll tell you, Patrice, it's a, uh, there's a lot there to unpack. It is one of the most important aspects of the Bigger Boulder formula. Beyond investment management, this is a major lever that can be pulled or pushed to really drive greater outcomes, more tax efficiencies, et cetera. And at the end, it's all about what we can do to create this bigger, bolder retirement. So much like our bigger, bolder retirement formula, which talks about investment management and advanced planning and relationship management, this aspect also has its own formula. And advanced planning as we see it is a combination of wealth enhancement, wealth transfer, wealth preservation, as well as charitable giving. And what I'd like to do is kind of go through each of those in in a little bit of detail. Uh, Essentially, wealth enhancement is really tax mitigation and cash flow planning. What can we do to be more efficient and keep more of what we've got. Wealth transfer talks a lot about how can we move assets from ourselves to someone else. That might happen at death. That might happen while we're alive. That might happen to our children or grandchildren. And wealth preservation is a bit more than just simply investment management protection. It talks about uh, legal structures and transferring risk potentially to a third party. And then last but not least, charitable gifting. What can we do to not only um, give, but also receive some degree of benefit, tax benefit? And how can that play in terms of the bigger retirement picture? Okay. Sounds fantastic. So let's start at the beginning. Wealth enhancement. Now, taking into consideration the last podcast, is it safe to assume wealth enhancement is about the decisions and strategies listeners can use that go beyond investment management? That's it, exactly. Obviously, one of the best ways to enhance one's wealth is to grow one's wealth through careful, deliberate investment planning. But there are other things that can be done, other things that can be applied in addition to investment management that can also drive this equation and deliver bigger, 
bolder retirement. So when we talk about wealth enhancement, we generally talk about the strategies, tactics, techniques that can help enhance, improve, or increase one's wealth outside of the confines of investment management and strategy. And when we talk about it, it typically means we're talking about two specific aspects. What can we do from the standpoint of tax mitigation? And what can we do from the standpoint of cash flow planning? Well, tax mitigation, I think that's on everybody's minds, especially now in April. (laughs) Absolutely. And, And it should be on everybody's mind as they're planning for retirement as well. At the end of the day, the taxes you pay have an awful lot to do with the money you keep and how quickly assets dissipate. Um, this whole issue, discussion of, of, of taxation, kind of reminds me of that old joke, which is, you know, what is the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion? And, and the answer is uh, about 20 years in prison. <laughs> uh, so there are many things that can be done legally to help avoid tax. Uh, We're not talking about evasion. We're not talking about Caribbean islands or any of those types of things. And a lot of the tax planning is really derived from structure of the accounts, how portfolios are titled, and also planning for retirement now, kind of with the end in mind. We see an awful lot of problems and situations that pop up where individuals will really focus on the here and now. What can I do to save taxes today? Mm. And at the end, when it's time to now decumulate and spend money, they realize that maybe those decisions that were made decades ago were not the best decisions considering what the tax obligation is now and the lack of flexibility one might have. Let me let me give you just a, a couple of uh, a couple of quick examples that might uh, might help explain that. And we see this, uh, unfortunately, a, a, an awful lot. So as, as you know, uh, a large group of our clients work within mobility technology. And these are people who typically work for large corporations. And as a result, a good deal of their wealth accumulation is done through 401ks and other corporate-derived savings tools. And In many cases, folks are so eager to see some tax relief today that they tend to save a good deal of this this accumulation on a pre-tax basis. Mm. So they're receiving some immediate tax benefit by putting money away today. But you roll ahead 30 years and all that money that was put away pre-tax now has never been taxed. And all the earnings that have accumulated over those many decades have also not been taxed. So now the biggest single bucket we have available to us to drive cash flow and spending, which we'll touch on in a moment, is in a bucket that is fully taxable. And it denies us flexibility. It denies us the ability to reduce tax brackets by using alternative buckets with different tax issues associated with it. And it becomes really problematic to drive or plan for a lower bracket when we're kind of stuck 
with the only bucket we have in retirement being fully taxed, just like earned income. Let me share with you another example, somewhat along the same vein. It's, again, this idea of solving an immediate problem without anticipating the effect of that problem down the road. So we see an awful lot of folks who have um, non-retirement-based accounts. Think of that as a savings or a general investment account. And they're throwing off some degree of interest or their investment account is throwing off dividends and interest and some degree of taxation, capital gains, let's say. And they, they, they see that as a, a problem today. So what they decide to do is they decide to take that money and put it into some type of a non-qualified annuity. And there are a variety of different annuities one can choose, but essentially what they're doing is they're now just deferring all of that growth, deferring all of those tax obligations down the road. And now in retirement, we're looking at all the assets that are available that we can draw from. And now we have this annuity. Well, under current tax structure, uh, LIFO, last in, first out, it means anytime you take money out of that annuity, it is also being treated as ordinary taxable income, the highest bracket you will pay in retirement. Additionally, by having the money in the annuity for that period of time, you've missed out on whatever capital gains you would have. And as a result, you miss out on a much, much lower capital gains tax rate. And then the third thing you miss out on is in your passing, those assets, if held outside of an annuity, would have passed your heirs with a stepped-up cost basis, where there would be no taxation on price appreciation. But in the annuity, all that gain is still fully taxed and now a obligation that your heirs will need to bear. Again, start with the end in mind and figure out how to more tax efficiently create a portfolio that will just simply serve you better. Already, there is so much my head is spinning. Is this something that a wealth advisor or a firm like Caden Wealth can help with, or does someone need a CPA to help with this? A CPA certainly can help with this. Our experience has been that most CPAs, especially for individual clients, just simply act as historians. Uh, they, they receive the accumulation of all the forms and paperwork, and then they put together the 1040 and identify what the tax effect is. Um, some CPAs will incorporate tax management into their portfolio into their offerings, typically a really good CFP, a really good wealth management firm will always have that as a, as a service, as, as something that they're doing on an active regular basis. Effectively, as a financial advisor, um, orchestrating the portfolio, orchestrating these strategies, we have the ability to make tactical changes that can affect tax liability on the fly, which is quite a bit different because it'll have a meaningful impact at the end of the year than simply 
harvesting all the returns, see where we are, mm-hmm. and then pay taxes accordingly. So the key is you should be doing some degree of tax planning. There should be some degree and some level of conversation as to how all of this fits together and how you can implement this to make a much more efficient retirement, whether you're doing that with your advisor or you're doing that with your CPA, the conversation should be had. Now, you folks at Caden, how do you like to do this? You, you've talked about three different buckets before. Yeah, we're, uh, we're big fans of what we call triangulation. And the earlier we can start with a client, the, the, the better. The idea is we know many of our clients are going to accumulate quite a bit of money uh, on a pre-tax basis because of simply their participation in 401k. But we also want to make sure that they are um, familiar with the uh, ability and the reasons why they should also accumulate on a tax-free basis and also what I would call a tax-preferred basis. So we think of this as a triangle. We have pre-tax, which is all the monies going into 401k and retirement-based assets on a pre-tax basis. We have tax-free, which is generally money that might go into a Roth or a Roth 401k or after-tax money that's in a 401k that could be converted to a Roth IRA or HSA contributions. All of those dollars accumulate essentially on a tax preferred basis. There's no tax immediately. And then that bucket down the road, we can access tax free. And then the third area, tax preferred, just simply means that money being pulled from that area uh, may have a a different and much more unique tax uh, associated with it. In some cases, there may be no tax at all. In some cases, the tax would be on simply gain and not the amount distributed. And in cases where there may be tax on gain, those taxes may actually be at a long-term capital gains rate, which is also much more favorable than ordinary taxable income. Now we're getting to the part that I like. We've accumulated everything. Now we get to spend it. But apparently you say there are strategies involved in spending. What strategies? You take the money, you spend it. That sure sounds easy. (laughs) Uh, Might not be the most effective way of doing things, though. So cash flow planning is is really a, a, a key issue in how we enjoy and spend down uh, this this, uh, three or four decades of accumulation. You know, what it took to accumulate money while you're working, the accumulation phase is completely different than the spending or decumulation phase. Uh, The math is just the complete opposite. And the tools we use are a bit different as well. If you think about it, while you're working, you're saving. And what you're saving are assets that you're not spending, but they're all derived from some salary. Um, And you're either a salaried employee with W-2 income, Mm -hmm. or you're a contract employee with 1099 income. Either way, it's taxable income that drives your savings, your expenditures, and all the experiences you have. 
in retirement, all the experiences you have, the expenses you have as well, are derived not by a W-2 or a 1099, as in I'm working as an independent contractor, but rather on cash flow. And cash flow doesn't necessarily need to be taxed like salaries. Cash flow can be non-taxable. It can be taxed at a much lower tax rate. So the idea is through the concept we had before, triangulation. How can we have a mix of assets in various buckets with a different tax obligation? And how do we mix these things, pull from one or the other to drive the necessary cash flow, but do it in a way that creates the least amount of tax friction. And there are a lot of things to think about. Uh, We have to look at all resources. Sure, your accumulated wealth and where that wealth is held is important. But we also have to consider, are there other sources of guaranteed income? And what are the tax effects of that? Do you have a pension? Well, then you may very well have taxable income at the federal level. You may or may not have taxable income at the state level, as some states don't tax pension income. Uh, You will at some point receive social security. Depending on overall taxable income, your social security will be taxed, but generally at a slightly lower rate than pension income and or what salaries would have been. So there's various resources coming in also with different tax loading. And it's important to be able to kind of mix these together. Kind of think of it as a, uh, with, with the investment side. And by the way, in retirement, between your social security and pension, you know, that's two legs of essentially a three-legged stool. And that third leg, which is how do we create cash flow from our investments, may very well be the strongest of the three legs. It may support most or a good deal of that spending, depending on what your desired standard of living is, et cetera. So we need to look at all that. And then the other thing we need to do is we need to kind of plan out what that cash flow will look like. Generally, for most people, as they enter retirement, uh, we tend to look at retirement as three separate stages. There's the go-go years, and that's from the time we initially retire, and, and that may last 10 years, may last 15, may last five. Doesn't last forever. Doesn't last forever. <laughs> Think of the characteristics as this. You, um, you're probably at your, your best health the moment you retire relative to where you'll be elsewhere. Also, the minute you retire, you probably have the longest list of bucket list items that you like to accomplish, experiences that you like to have. So those go-go years is when you want to get those things done. You want to experience that because you have your health, uh, you have your energy, and you've got this bucket list. At some point, the go-go years turn into the 
no uh the the slow go or go slow years and and that's this intermediate stage the good news is you still have your health and more than likely you're still living independently which is also a real big key but now this bucket list is much much lighter you've already done all those great things and you don't really have the need or desire or interest to do it again so here we also have health. We're living independently, but we're not necessarily spending quite as much on a lot of the ex- experience things, the experiential issues that we would normally spend money on. And then unfortunately, that leads to the no-go years. And it's those no-go years, typically much later in life, where now there are usually health concerns. So we don't have the ability to go out and spend like we would. And more importantly, we're probably losing some independence because of health as well. So we trade a perfectly good home that's bought and paid for, that's relatively easy to maintain, and we trade that for assisted living or nursing home or something that we're now renting at a much, much greater monthly expense. So a lot of our decumulation as a result in healthcare happens much, much later in life. And then as we look at this journey going through this continuum, we also look at other events that have a major impact on cash flow. What does retirement look like before you're 65 when you're not on Medicare and you've got to cover a significant amount of healthcare costs? What does it look like when you are Medicare eligible? Do the overall premiums and effective cost of healthcare go down? And then what do we do about covering donut holes and deductibles and co-pays? When do you take Social Security? We're a big fan of delaying it as far down the road as possible to age 70, preferably. What does cash flow need to be if we're not claiming Social Security? Often, it might require a greater spend rate. It might require more money being spent early until we get to the point of social security. And then voila, there's a lot of cash flow coming in. And now we can dumb down the amount of spending from the general portfolio. And then there's always a lot of planning that needs to be done up to and including the time that we take required minimum distributions. At that point, the tax effect is somewhat locked in. Now we're being forced to take money out of an IRA at a less than desirable taxable rate. So so in summary, we have to consider the amount of money you need to support your lifestyle and, and all those experiences that you'd like to have and enjoy. We need to look at the resources that are available, and we need to look at how we can drive the lowest possible tax effect from all of these resources. And the more flexibility we can build, the easier it is to create a far more efficient, tax-friendly cash flow scenario. Well, you just let all the air out of my spending balloon. I hope you realize that. (laughs) This is taking (laughs) planning. This takes planning. And I want to keep that wealth as long as I can and maybe even transfer it to some people if I have something left. So I've got the wealth enhancement. What about the wealth transfer, Jim? Wealth transfers 
quite important. And, and simply put, it, it's just how do we move money from one owner's bucket to somebody else's bucket and do it as efficiently and as frictionless as possible? Now, those transfers could happen at death. Those transfers can happen while we're alive as well. So let's let's talk for a second about some of the big problems with transferring on death. And, and the biggest problem, we hope this isn't an issue for anyone, would be what if you owned a lot of your assets yourself, titled in your name, and you didn't use other strategies or tactics that could convey a transfer more efficiently. Even things as simple as a beneficiary agreement or a jointly held account can convey and move those assets far more efficiently. But no, in this case, you you own those assets yourself. And let's complicate this a bit and say very early in your life, you, you um, were married and that marriage produced a child and that marriage dissolved and you really lost touch with the, the child. You've been estranged from that child for many years now, but you've remarried and have a very healthy and successful marriage and you've been together for decades, but you've always been kind of leery of melding the pot. So you've had your assets, she's had her assets, and it's been a very successful marriage. And, and God forbid something happens and, and, and you pass. Now, your intent is to provide and protect for your spouse, this, this individual whom you absolutely love. But you've always kept those assets in your name. And to make it worse, you, you never bothered to get a, get a will mm. uh, to, to mm-hmm. at least indicate what you'd like to see done. If that happens, you're, um, you're considered to have died intestate. And what that means is you now have effectively um, assigned- You've copped out, you've copped the, the, out the, basically. The, right. You, you've assigned the state to step in and kind of dictate what happens. And every state, it's a little bit different. But I can tell you what happens in, in this state, and I'm, I'm in Michigan. Um, if if that were to happen, there's a child out there that you really don't know, and you you have your your spouse, your your loved one. If that were a situation, because of the line of demarcation, this very orchestrated um, function of how assets are split depending on what heirs are alive, the money gets split like this. The first hundred thousand of your wealth will go to your spouse, and then the sum total of everything else will get split right down the middle, fifty-fifty. Half of it going to your spouse, and half of it going to this child who you've never known. Now, some people might say, "Well, it's nice to be able to give to the child," but imagine the problems that that creates for your loved one. Clearly, there's far less financial support. Uh, There's less assets to drive retirement. Uh, It might require some very difficult decisions that might need to be made on that part of that that surviving spouse. So 
making sure that you have wills or trust or making sure that you use other types of asset uh, titlement uh, to be able to drive those exchanges and those transfers uh, make an awful lot of sense. Now, that's just dealing with transfers at the time of death. There's also a number of things that could be done while one is alive. There are many cases we have clients who every year uh, will give a certain amount of money or value, I should say, to their uh, adult children. That works really well. My wife and I have done that before as well. And generally what we prefer to do is instead of giving cash, uh, we prefer to give shares of uh, some appreciated stock that we might have. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea is by doing that, I avoid the capital gains on selling those that stock. And uh, the gift essentially has cost me a whole lot less. As an example, if I wanted to give a gift of $10,000 and I gave the value of stock that was worth $10,000, but that stock was bought 15, 20 years ago, and uh, my cost basis, what I paid for it was $2,000, essentially that has afforded me a $10,000 gift with a cost of $2,000. And then that money is now available for children. Uh, For parents or grandparents who are interested in funding college education for their children using something like a a 529 account, uh, there's even more flexibility now. Uh, I alluded to this in one of the prior episodes, but the uh, SECURE Act Part 2, which was written into law between the holidays just several months ago, now has provided a benefit on the back end of these 529s, where if there's residual money left over, up to $35,000 of that money can be converted over time into a Roth IRA for that child. Now we're putting money into a Roth IRA that can have decades upon decades upon decades of tax-free growth. It's a really significant and very efficient way of getting some money into that next generation tax efficiently. Well, the gift laws are anybody can give up to $17,000 per person per year in gifting. So I can give $17,000 to my wife, or I I can give $17,000. My wife and I can give $17,000 each, I guess is what I'm saying, which means we give $34,000. I can give an unlimited amount to my wife, and she can with me. Believe me, we've done that before as well. But the, the, the real key is in 529s, you can make a $17,000 gift per year. But what you also can do is you can make a single gift of up to $85,000, essentially pulling ahead five years of $17,000 a year. Now, with an infant child, newborn, moving that kind of money into a 529, will most assuredly cover the the full effect of college education because there's this compound effect on such a a large amount. But it also ensures that there's a really good probability that there will be money left over, which can then be moved into this kind of multi-generational gifting residing in in a Roth IRA. So there's some really interesting 
gift opportunities uh, that are available. And the, the last thing I would mention in terms of wealth transfer is, is, is titlement. Titlement is very important. There are things that can be done which will avoid a lot of these transfer issues, much like this issue that we had with intestate, having money held in a, in a joint account, uh, having money held in a, a TOD, which is an account transfer on death, which simply means, hey, there's now this executed beneficiary agreement, uh, which indicates where that money goes. And that avoids probate and it avoids the intestate issues that we spoke about before. Trust will also do the same thing, avoids probate. One issue that we do see sometimes with joint accounts that I just wanted to uh, share in, in closing, and that is very often when one spouse passes, the idea then is we want to make this as efficient as possible for the kids to inherit this money eventually. And what some single parents will do is they will put a, a child, an adult child, on an account, whether it's a bank account or a brokerage account, as, as being jointly held. So mom and son, dad and daughter, on and on. And while that's effective, it will transfer those assets and avoid probate uh, and avoid any of those friction issues we talked about before, it can create an issue because now those assets are exposed to any legal action that might come upon the child. Uh, let's say the child was involved in a car accident and the child was uh, held responsible and there is a civil lawsuit. The courts will do what's referred to as discovery, and they will see this account sitting out there jointly held with mom. As far as they're concerned, it's 100% owned by him or her and 100% owned by mom, and those assets could be used to satisfy those types of judgments. So there are better ways to hold assets where the parent uh, remains in control, and yet it provides a conduit a, uh, a, an opportunity to move those assets uh, to the uh, surviving child at a later date without incurring immediate incidents of ownership. So keep that in mind as well. It's a big topic. There's a lot of issues we could go on and on. It is huge, but you've done such a great job of, of giving us an overview and some really good insights, great examples of ways to help enhance wealth outside of investment management. And Wealth transfer, who knew? I mean, so much there. So we're going to take a pause here. We're going to come back with another episode to do the remainder of the advanced planning equation. This is wealth preservation and charitable giving. Some great tactics, strategies coming up in the next episode. Now, if you haven't gathered, today's episode was the third in what has now become a five-part miniseries because there's just so much to talk about. If you are joining us for the first time, we recommend you go back and listen to episodes four and five to get caught up. For a free copy of the Bigger, Bolder Retirement Formula and other free retirement planning tools, please visit this episode's show notes. And if you'd like to get a closer look at how the Bigger, Bolder Retirement Formula can enhance your retirement plans, contact Caden Wealth at 800-638-6900 
or visit cadenwealth.com and click get started. That link also in the show notes. Of course, please subscribe to the Retirement Engineer Podcast so you don't miss future episodes and follow at Caden Wealth on Facebook, Instagram, and all the social media platforms. Let us know what you think in the comments and share topics you'd like us to discuss in future episodes. Following and sharing this podcast helps us make a bigger impact. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Retirement Engineer. Thank you for listening to The Retirement Engineer with Jim Cruzan. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.cadenwealth.com or give us a call at 800-638-6900. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of Jim Cruzan and this episode's guests, not necessarily those of Caden Wealth Management. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.